Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, Hello gentlemen. How's things? Hello. Good. Are we all good? All good in the hood, as they say? I don't know Very if they say it good. anymore, but they say it. They say Nobody it says that anymore, unless you're in Marion Bed. Oh, wow. Okay. Fair enough. Well, spoilers. Cats out of the bag. Uh, Listeners? Yeah, listeners. I was going to say viewers. Listeners. (laughs) uh, You you may have guessed from the title uh, of this episode's podcast what we're going to be talking about today. So um, before we get into the nitty gritty, anyone have anything they want to talk about? Any any stories? I was trying to, you know, there's this crazy thing in Austin that happens called, so... um, the one of the main streets if you've ever heard about austin one of the main streets you've heard about is called sixth street that's where people go and there's like dollar tequila shots and so they just get hammered and there's like a lot of crime there at night and like it's like a big party you know scene um uh the old name was pecan street so once a year they do a pecan street festival which is like two streets down from our house and it's just like they shut down about 12 blocks and it's all vendors serving fried food and uh, cheap jewelry. Um, but uh, this year, there's there's something. Uh, have you? Um, oh shoot! What's it called? Something bamboo. I'll have to find the name here in a second. But it's like these crazy dumplings that are like they'll look like um, cartoon characters, or they'll look like uh, other things. So so like the design on these dumplings is like incredibly intricate, and uh, they just go around and do festivals. And so they they're actually in Austin this weekend. So. We're excited to go check out some colorful, creative dumplings. <laughs> nice. Sounds cool. Sounds cool. What about y'all? Yeah, nothing new here. I've had the week off work, so just watching a few movies, catching up on some chores around the house. Um, yes, just taking it easy, which is nice. I uh, started my new job, which I'm sure listeners if they've been here for a bit know i just started another new job in december i don't just switch jobs randomly i was like <laughs> for anyone who thinks i just like jumped jump to job so i actually went back to my old one um but so uh, that's that's been me i've been trying to get caught up and get my mind set back to the right place yeah super well, early warning signs and is this is this a good move you think so far uh, yeah, um, the issue of reason, kind of a big reason I left before, there were a few reasons, but one of the big ones was doing a program we call GPS monitoring and outreach detention, where essentially you are on call 24 hours a day, because if your kid runs off in the middle of the night, you've got to deal with that. And that was a big part of my burnout was doing that. So one of my requests was I would not be doing those type of programs, except for, you know, if somebody went on vacation or something, I would cover. Um Beyond that, I'm going to be doing like mentoring, life skills, um, foster care stuff, and uh, TDT things like that for people on a dr- uh, drug treatment anal- uh, analysis and stuff like that. Okay, cool. That's nice. That's awesome. All right, I suppose we'll get into get into the movies. Um, so the first film we're going to talk about today was made in 1961. Uh, by a dude called Alain René. Uh, the film's called Last Year in Marienbad, or Last Year at Marienbad. It kind of has two different titles, depending on how who was uh, translating it, whether you're British or American. Um, to give you like the lowdown on this film, for those who are maybe unaware of it, 
Uh, it's an unconventional French drama where a group of unnamed aristocrats interact at a palatial chateau, resulting in an enigmatic tale through partially in flashback. X is convinced that he has met the beautiful A before in the Czech resort town of Marienbad, implies they had a romantic relationship. M, who may be A's husband or boyfriend, confronts her mysterious suitor, leading to conflict and questions about the truth behind his story. Now, I think Zach is going to take over here and tell us exactly what this film is about, if you want to take it away, Zach. Great. Good. I mean, I figured it out pretty easily. I'm surprised you guys <laughs> even need me to spell it out. <laughs> um, yeah, like for, for those who maybe might be uninitiated with last year, Marion Bad, you have potentially heard of it. It is, it, it's, it, it's very, it's, it's one of those films where nothing is spelled out for you. There are interpretation upon interpretation upon interpretation of how you can view this film. It is essentially a surrealist work. It isn't a straight narrative in any way sense uh, of, you know, that you would sort of, you know, any, any other sort of straight narrative film, this is like kind of the opposite of it. Um, but it, it's an it's an amazing film. Uh, even if you are, you know, not really inclined towards surrealism, I feel personally, and I'll get your guys' opinion on this. Uh, I feel personally, the film is just so intoxicating to watch. How it's filmed, how it's edited, how it's put together, um, especially the direction from Renee. We we I think we we never actually got to talk about Hiroshima Mana more on the podcast because it was so early in the film club days, but. Between that film and this film, Alain René, his tracking shots, you know, the way he does those tracking zooms, they just hit different to like every other filmmaker. He just like has it down so perfectly in terms of the timing of the tracking and everything like that. Um, but yeah, well, what do you guys think of, of, of last year and Mary? But this was my second time seeing it, by the way. So I had the benefit of kind of knowing what I was getting in for watching it this time. So I was able just to sort of spend more time taking it in. Uh, rather than trying desperately to figure it out, um, yeah, to jump in. Uh, there's a um, <clears throat> there's a connection you made between both movies we're going to be talking about today with that last statement. I won't give any spoilers, but you know, there, there's something with this, you know, the, the the medium of film to make modern art, right? Where a lot of modern art is not meant to be understood, but meant to be experienced, hmm. and that's kind of like a guiding light for going through a lot of these museums. I've I've listened to a couple of audio tracks walking through these museums, trying to scratch my head as to what's going on. <laughs> that's what, that's one thing I've taken away from, from a lot of this. And this to me just is like such a perfect example of that. So, so the, um, uh, you know, collection of 13,000 critics put this at the 99th best film of all time. 99, is it? 99. Yeah. That's so, so it's just cracking impressive. in the top hundred. You said impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Zach, you'll be glad to know a, a, a Once Upon a Time in America is three spots above it at 96. Yeah, as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I, this, this is the movie for me that I think that I would have hated uh, up until, let's call it three years ago or so. And something about listening to, I don't know what it was, eight commentaries about Fellini movies listening to five commentaries about Jodorowsky movies uh, as I've been going through these, I have a, I realized that I kind of love this stuff now. So like, I think it just, I had to reframe my mind when I went into watching these. 
Um, I, I didn't like being unsettled and sort of not understanding what was going on in, in a movie. I, I used to think that was pretentious um, uh, until I started hearing it from the author's perspective or the creator's perspective. And, you know, they're, they're trying to evoke emotions with these movies, right? And so for me, this movie works incredibly well. Like I, I love, one of my favorite things, I know we'll get into more, but like one of my favorite things, I'll just end with this now, the way that they use that painting and the way that they kind of switch between locations and you're not sure if that painting is real. Does the whole thing take place in the painting? Like, like what's the role of that sort of frame uh, is just beautiful to me. Like I could, that's, that's the mystery that I kind of was going focused on. And I know that there's obviously a lot more going on, but that's the thing that jumped out to me is the most interesting piece here. Uh, as I was going through it. So that when I watch it again, um, I'm going to be just focusing on the painting and just seeing how that's used. What are you using? I hated it. I really did. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and I, I'll kind of go through it, I guess. Um, I watched this movie about, I think our, what was it? We did this about two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, I probably watched a little under two weeks ago, and I was interested in it because it sounds it, 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 on paper it sounds really interesting. I watched it. I felt no engagement at all towards it. Um, nothing. I felt no. I, I'll kind of get into that as we go. But so I, I was like, okay, well, let me read some stuff on it. I read some theories. I read analysis. I read you guys' reviews before I even wrote mine on the uh, our film club part. I read more reviews and I was just like, I don't get it. Like, I just, I, I just really, I don't get it. <laughs> it's just, and it's not the fact that I don't understand what's going on. It, it's like, I, I, I can recognize that I think the camera works really good. I think it looks great. I like the orchestra sound, but like, it's almost like the filmmakers trying to reel me in by just throwing a worm into the lake and doesn't actually have a way to pull me into what's going on. Like, I just don't, care about like anything that's going on in this place and it just I don't know like I don't know if I just don't have the right mindset for it or it just it just didn't work for me like at all and I hated it because I wanted to like it um especially with all I've read about it um and we'll talk about our next film where I'll kind of compare them of why I think that works much better than this does but either way I'd like to hear more about what you guys liked about it because maybe it'll click for me um but it didn't click for me when I watched it just a quick question, Zach. Uh, just to, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know this off the top of my head. What's your take on a lot of French New Wave in general? Like, how do you generally feel about a lot of the, the movies we've seen in that in that genre? Um, I'm bad with this. I liked uh, Elevator and the Gallows. That was one, right? I liked that one a lot. Mm -hmm. um, was Eyes Without a Face French New Wave? Oh, uh, yeah. French doesn't. Yeah, French doesn't come into it too much. Um... I don't mean to put you on the spot with individual titles. Just generally, when you think about this, like that, that the way that they, you know, shot movies, like if you think of like Godard movies, or if you think of like, um, uh, you know, Louis Malle movies, or I don't know, just some of these movies that we've seen uh, with the club, or or just I don't know if you've seen them on your own, where they have a similar kind of vibe to this in terms of where, like when you enter the world you know, maybe there, there's a similar kind of feel to this. Is that something that you uh, generally have a hard time getting into? 
I, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag for me. Some of it really works for me. And then I think we've talked about some on this podcast. I can't think of any right now that I just didn't care for at all. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you the reason for that, but it's just, I don't know. Maybe it's in my DNA not to like French people. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe, <laughs> uh, uh, I, maybe I can kind of explain. Um, if, I, if I'm being super technical, last year, Marion Bad isn't even a French New Wave film. It's true. It's a left bank film. So when the sort of in, in, in the sort of late 50s or early 50s, if you're Varda, she was ahead of the curve on all of them. Um, but sort of lower late 50s, you know, these these French filmmakers that kind of came out. And, and this would kind of include Melville and Franju, who were already they were a bit more um they, they were already a bit more ahead of, of these guys. But um, essentially, it was two different groups. So there was the Cahiers de Cinema guys who wrote for Cahiers de Cinema, like Truffaut and Godard and Chabrol. They were on what they call the right bank. And then you had the left bank, who are essentially, they were, they were filmmakers from France, but they didn't really have the same ideals towards cinema that the likes of Godard and Truffaut did. And when René falls into that category, along with Varda, Jacques Demy gets lumped in because obviously he was married to Varda, um, but but Rene and Varda kind of they they fall into the, into this opposite category where it's less about the conventions of the physical act of making a film, and more so about the conventions of the end product and theme and plot, because um, obviously with the French with Godard and Truffaut, a lot of their a lot of the things that made their films interesting were just more to do with the technical aspects and how they approached the technical aspect of filmmaking. Whereas Rene and Varda were perhaps a bit more poetic um, and were, were more interested in what you could do narratively as a, as a, as a, um, as an art form, if that makes sense. So I can, to sum it all up, I can understand why you liked Elevator to the Gallows but didn't necessarily like last year Marion Bad because they had they had two they 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 were they were two separate sort of ideas behind film. Mm-hmm. Louis Mal doesn't even really fall into either category. Uh, he wasn't really he wasn't really part of either of them. He probably falls more into the George Farnju category where he was around at that time, but he wasn't really involved in these movements. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe part of it was going in with like some preconceived notions. Like I think I'd heard people kind of compare it to Mulholland Drive. And I think in my mind, I was also kind of thinking of uh, Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, which I I, I liked Mm -hmm. a lot. And it didn't really fit either of those by the time it ended for me. Like, I can see the the comparisons. But I feel like it's done in a way that doesn't necessarily work for me. Like, like, just to kind of go for a little bit, like, Mulholland Drive. There, you know, the way I think when I think of, like, Lynch um, surrealism, sure, I can be a little confused when it ends. But, you know, I'm interested in, like, who the cowboy is. I, You know, by the end, you can kind of come up with a very surface level, this is what this is about. Yeah. And it's all up to you to how much deeper you go with that. But I have, like, a, I guess you could say a connection. Like, that connection, like, when, when we talk about Mulholland Drive, I know the basic plot. I know what the, the surface is. How much deeper you want to go is up to you. Mm-hmm. With this, I don't even know if I can, I guess, find my footing, in a sense. Like, where do I take this? Where do I go? What is it? What does any of this mean? And, you know, I've, I've read, you know, I think I read yours, Adam, where you were talking about like, 
every theory on here has a massive contradiction in it. And it's like, yeah, for sure. We're, we'll get into, yeah, we'll we're, get into theories later. That? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We'll get, we'll get into theories. And I have, I do have one sort of final theory on this film. I kind of mentioned it when we sort of spoke off, off recording last week when I was telling you guys, you know, what film I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. this week. Um, but I'll, I'll go into it. But uh, look, I, I want to preface this to say that this is not a slight against you. I understand if people don't like this film. I completely fucking get it. It's a really hard film to sit through because there is, there's, there's not a lot outside of the visuals. There's not a lot of, to grasp at because the characters move like pawns. They're not really characters. They're there to be moved around by Rene into the places he needs them to go for the film to look in a certain way and to feel a certain way from an atmospheric point of view. So Again, I don't want to talk too much about Mulholland Drive because we're going to be talking about that later. Spoiler alert. Um, But that film has a lot of fleshed out characters that you can really latch onto. Even the characters that only show up for two minutes, they feel real and you can latch onto them. Whereas in last year, Marion Bad, the characters don't even have names. The the names that I said in the intro, X, M and A, they're they're from the script. They're never mentioned in the film. They're just nameless sort of pawns to this sort of overarching essentially an experimentation in film form so i i completely get why people wouldn't get much enjoyment from this film maybe you can obviously respect it from a from a filmmaking point of view as you already said you know you appreciated that it looked nice and everything like that um but i, I can completely understand why why some people wouldn't feel anything more than that because i think it's just one of those films where it either hits you or it doesn't. If it hits you, then you're going to be intrigued by it and you're going to want to watch it again to try and figure it out. If it doesn't hit you, then it's just going to be like you, it's basically just like you sat and watched a, an art, a modern art piece for two hours in a museum. You're going to get the same kind of enjoyment out of it. Right. If right. that makes sense. Yeah. So I would not feel bad for not liking it. I wouldn't try and force you to like it. It's just one of those films where it, it either hits you or it doesn't. You know, it's a very Marmite film, as we'd say. I don't know if you guys know what Marmite is. <laughs> but it's a very Marmite film. That's so funny. We have debates in our house because I'm the one that doesn't like it. And my uh, my son and my wife both love it. Well, you, you should throw them out because it's disgusting. I'm on your side. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Theory time? theory time yeah i want to hear some theories and maybe maybe i'll get some connection here unless chris is anything to bring up first before we go theory time unless what unless you have anything else to sort of add to what i was talking about no i'm fine if we get into theories i just i'm curious do y'all happen to know maybe adam maybe this is more towards you do you happen to know if renee did anything uh in like art you know outside of film like was he was he an artist by trade um, not that I'm aware of off the top of my head. I know he got his start in editing um, as opposed to actual filmmaking. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure. I'm just having a quick look. You know, here. The only reason I, I'm asking is because, you know, he did Hiroshima, Monomore, and then Night and Fog, right? Which are, yeah. um, Night and Fog especially is 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 very different from this and, and very... Um, politically minded, kind of activist minded, you know, mm. film. Uh, and this one feels 
very different in not only in the plot and, and the way it's constructed, but just in spirit, like the spirit of this film is very different, you know, like, I don't think he's, unless it's hidden deep in the layers here, I don't think he's trying to make a political movie here. I think this is truly like a work of art. Um, uh, and I just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just curious if, if this was like the exception for him or if this is just, yeah, no, from, from what I'm reading here, he certainly had an interest in art. Some of his like first sort of commissions were about making films about, about paintings, specifically okay. Picasso works as well. Uh, so it seems like he certainly had an interest in art, whether he was a, an artist himself. It doesn't really say too much on his, on his Wikipedia about it, but from the looks of his sort of when he got started, he was some of his early commissions were about art. And he does like to play with time and space, right? Because isn't Jet Tam yeah. Jet isn't that a science fiction type movie as well with time travel? I don't know. I've actually only seen two of his films, this one and uh, Hiroshima on I've, I've never actually seen, uh, but by the title, Jet Tam Jet isn't Tem. Oh, so I love you, I love you. I thought Tem might have been time. I, I don't know, um, is my honest answer. I, I don't know. I've never seen any of his other films. Funnily I'm, enough. Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that's the one that. Michel Gondry, the only reason I know that is Michel Gondry, I'm pretty sure claimed he saw that and then went and wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, um, like, yeah, centers on Claude, who was asked to participate in mysterious experiment, experiment in time travel. So, okay, yeah, yeah. You're right, time travel film. So he, he does seem to maybe be interested in this relationship to time and space a little bit, which yeah. is getting into territory that's smarter than I am for sure. Um, so I want to be careful going down this path too much. Uh, but that's, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the beginning of that in his career as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this, anyway. film certainly, this film certainly does it. Um, it certainly plays with any sort of notion of time. You know, it kind of plays with all the notions of time and, you know, our, um, our own perception of, yeah. of time and space, you know, at, it's called last year in Marion bad, but the protagonist doesn't actually seem to know for sure if it was Marion bad. He names yeah. a few other places that they could have met Frederick's bad, uh, another one as well. So it seems to play with all sort of notions of time, space, memory, pretty much all those things that we perceive. So we perceive time, we perceive where we are, we perceive our memories, you know, how we remember them. And everything like that. This, this film kind of tries to play with any sort of notion regarding those three things: time, space, and memory. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I and I, I won't say anything else until we get into theories. I'll let you kick this off, but that kind of ties into what I want to say in the theory part. So, um, okay, let's let's jump in then. I guess I don't have anything else. Yeah. Just before we do, Zach, do you have like any any surface level theories come to you at all when watching this movie? I really don't like I, I I hate to sound that way um there were things there were little things that intrigued me I was kind of curious about like the okay. uh, uh the game guy who kept making like the matchstick games and the card yeah, games yeah. and stuff I don't know that just pointed out to me like something unusual and I'm not I don't know I don't know if, it might be something you posted that kind of made me think but it was almost like a uh almost like a game for something more important than just Okay, well, hold on. That's, that's, okay. that's a great segue. That's a great segue into some of the theories that, that I come up with just when watching the movie. And 
changed because things contradicted. I'd say in between the two times I've watched this movie, I've probably thought of like at least a dozen different sort of theories that could work, but usually something pops up that contradicts it in some way. And you're like, shit, back to the Tron board. Shit, that didn't work. I got to try again. Um, so like there's a few, I'll just sort of name it a few from my review that I wrote on it. So um, yeah, so when I first looked at it, um, originally I had assumed both of them were sort of equal, equal characters. So they were both the protagonist, the man and the woman. When I watched it again this time, I started to more feel like Delphine Sirig's character was like the main character. And both of the male characters, both the man pursuing her about her supposed affair last year, Marion Bad, and the guy who is essentially her husband, they're essentially both like fighting for her soul. So the husband who you said is the guy who, who plays the matchstick game with, with the suitor, um, you know, could be, you know, the devil himself, something like that, um, you know, trying to win over her soul either from the devil so it could be like uh either the suitor is like um is like orpheus you know the tale of orpheus and, and eurydice so it could be something like that where the suitor is orpheus and he's trying to win her soul back from the devil or it could be the opposite way around the devil's trying to buy her soul and the husband is god and he's trying to outsmart the devil so that's one <laughs> that's one theory um, well, yeah. I, I don't know if this helps or hurts it. I know the game. I can't remember the name of the game. I understand the concept. Neither do I. But yeah. it's um, it's a trick. It's it's a party trick. It, it, essentially, if you if you start the game and you understand the game, you can't lose it. And that's how you get people. There's no way if you know they, how to play the game, you cannot lose the game. They address that in the film, though. Do they? I'm trying to remember. Yes, like, now they do. Movie, but... He says this, and then he says, "Okay, well, you go first. And he still loses. He still loses, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Ah, that's right. You're right. Yep. Exactly, yep. exactly. And I'm going to come back to the game in a moment because that's what leads into my final theory. And um, so another one was that maybe it was a bit more grounded, and it was actually like a um, uh, an allegory for prostitution. And All again, right. the the protagonist, the sort of main guy, was trying to get her out of this life as a as an escort. She's trying to pretend that they never met last year because you know it'll piss off her her boss, who is the the husband character is actually her pimp and you know it's you know it's a, it's a high class place she's obviously a high class car call girl you know bringing to these parties to try and get you know men and stuff like that so that was that was another sort of theory and i couldn't get too couldn't get too deep into it because you know stuff i couldn't really find anything to sort of latch on with that it was just something that came into my head um and then the sort of last theory which i know a lot of people subscribe to or a lot of people lean towards is that everything that we see isn't actually real and it's all in the head of the main guy, the main protagonist, that he did do something to this woman, whether he raped her, whether he actually killed her. And he's basically, it's dissolved and it's like his tortured brain as he's trying to justify his actions by claiming that they were together and that they were in love and that he wants her to run away with her and that her husband's this abusive guy and it's, it's him in his head is trying to justify all of his actions, but he keeps getting these intrusive thoughts of what has actually happened and what actually took place, um, which is where you see the sort of more sort of flashes of violence throughout. So that was another theory. I know a lot of people do like that one. My final theory on what I think this film is about is that the film is about nothing and 
both Alans, Rene and Robe Grillet, the writer, are basically playing a game of that matchstick game with us. Okay. They're playing, the film is that game because every time you try a different way, so try a different theory and try and get be the winner, they always come out on top because they know the film, they wrote the film, they know what it's about. They know how to manipulate you into thinking you're going down the right path. And then like, no, you end up with the last matchstick. So at the yeah, end of it all, curiosity, you're always I, the I, one left at the end. Um, this is it, just to kind of go on that. Do you think, I'm not going to even try to say something. Do you think the filmmaker knows what this film's about? Or is it a little, because I know when you like, we're talking about like Lynch, for instance, he'll talk about like what a film means and he kind of rejects it and almost in a sense of, he doesn't really know because he doesn't, he, he kind of sees it as he's figuring it out too, sort of idea. Like I know when people talk about like, um, when he talks about Mahalan drive, we'll get into it, but he, somebody had asked him a question, are we going to see this again? And he was like, I don't know. We'll find out together. Um, and that's just yeah. kind of how he is versus do you think he has, this is how, what this movie's about. I know what it's I about. Don't think you so. never will. I okay. would be surprised. I think they've essentially created a puzzle, an okay. unsolvable puzzle, an unwinnable game. Right. Okay. They've. They, and that's that's why the matchstick game features so prominently. It's a clue to you, the viewer, that like the main character, you can try different ways, but you'll never win the game. So, yeah. that's my that's my final take on the film. You know, because you can you can try any which way you want to try and figure it out, but you'll always be the one left at the single matchstick at the end. That's close. That, that's probably the closest one to where I was thinking about, because I, I guess I, I took a slightly different angle here. Um, and, and I was, I couldn't tell, I read somewhere briefly that some people call this a horror film. And I was intrigued at that idea because I mean, there's, I, I you know, from one angle, the, the characters could be stuck in this world, right? The, the, the the painting could represent a prison of sorts or, or, or that, that palace that they're in, those rooms that they're in could represent a prison of sorts or, or, or some version of being stuck in, in this high society, but it's empty. Um, and this theory about it being a horror film talked about how like, there's no sense of reality. Like, where is the electricity coming from? Like, where is the, like, it seems like the lamps are gaslit. They, they started break going down into this, like, breaking down the, you know, the pieces of the room and saying like, it didn't, it's not quite reality. So are these characters, you know, kind of stuck here? Um, and that, so that's, that's something that I thought was interesting, but, but that didn't resonate with me, I guess, is my point. I can, I, it, it seems like that I, I wouldn't be stunned if, if that was true. Um, I think it's interesting that Marienbad is a town in, um, Czech Republic, mm. former Czechoslovakia, where there was a lot of Nazi uh, activity. There was a lot of uh, concentration camps. Um, so I don't know if there's any tie to that. Um, um, but based, based on Renee's previous film about you know concentration camps, possibly. Yeah, exactly. Like he goes right after this, and he makes the um, uh, what is it, Night and Fog, right? Yeah. Or it's really close after that, anyways. Um wait, when does he I think it might have been before? Hold on. 
Uh, Night and Fog. Um, short films. Night and Fog. Where is it? 1956, way before. Like five oh, years before you even Hiroshima Monomore. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know if that's if that's on his mind, but um, the, the one thing I will say, I don't know about this being a horror movie. Uh, uh, the, the one thing I will say, though, is that if that's true, it does make the beauty of that of the film, the way it's shot, that much more effective right if if the like i think it's it, can we talk about the ending or no it wouldn't make a difference if we doesn't do or matter not, right? so we might as well <laughs> doesn't matter right um in the end he walks off with the girl ultimately right yeah she kind of like concedes and just walks off with him right exactly she doesn't so, seem overly happy about it yeah yeah so she just sort of is like fine I, you won me over or like you you know um and so in that sense she's that to go to your theory about how this game is like it's like a matchstick game you know ultimately no matter how you play no matter how you approach it you'll end up losing mm. i could see taking that one step further and saying that this is sort of a uh she's the lead character and this is sort of a story of her being trapped in something and yeah. it's it's something that she can't get out of and she has her preferences in this. She has her, you know, things that she likes to lean on. Uh, but ultimately, she, she's going to go with this guy who's pursuing her because she has no control uh, over the situation. It's like inevitable, you know. Uh, and so that that's it's a bit of a depressing ending. Um, but I wouldn't be stunned if that's one interpretation that Renee had, just because. He didn't seem like the most optimistic, cheery guy. Um, uh, and I think in general, there is a, a lot of philosophy baked into a lot of movies from France coming out of that time. Yeah. And so sure. if this is something to do with the inevitability of, of, of life uh, uh, and, 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 you know, impossible to get out of your situation, um, then that, that would fit for me. So that, I'm, I'm obviously, that's very loose and I wish I could be more tight with that. But there's something in that that, that kind of resonates for me. And then especially when you talked about the game where no matter how you play, you can't ever actually win. Like it's it's, it's an impossible game. Then that made that theory go a little bit deeper, I guess, for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because it's almost like, you know, if I was going to make a dark film, one of the ways that you can do that is to introduce a lot of light, so to speak, right? Like a lot of beauty. And that's like, it represents, it creates like a nice contrast to the dark. So it makes the dark and the horror like almost that much more chilling because you've seen the beauty and you, so you're kind of like drawn to that. And so then you like pull against that and, and you, it, it contrasts against that to be more powerful. So if, I don't know, I, I'm talking myself into this a little bit more now as I, as I unpack it here, I guess. Maybe there's something there. Um, when you watch it again next time, you'll think, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so far from listening, I am going to stick with Adam's theory that nothing matters. This is all nihilistic and don't even try to figure it out. I think I'm going to yeah. stick with that one. But to be fair, like the, the screenwriter said exactly that. He said that if you don't think about, you know, what you're seeing, if you just let it, the image flow over you, I think it's something that he said along those lines. 
it'll be the easiest movie you ever watch if you just let the movie just happen it'll be the easiest film you'll ever watch he said it's only when people get too bogged down and trying to figure out what this scene means and that scene means that they can get frustrated i mean it just i i guess i get what he's saying but at the same time i'm like you know people are going to like that's that's like human nature to like okay this doesn't quite make sense how do i rationalize it like you can kind of go through the oh well you know if you don't do that the movie's more enjoyable but at the same time it's like i feel like you kind of have to like i think that's the expectation in some sense to, yeah we'll always want to figure out the mystery yeah like i i don't think you can make a mystery film and say i don't really care how it ends like i don't even need like a hard conclusion i just need like something it doesn't matter what you can leave it ambiguous all you want just like well give me something yeah there was a guy i'll have to see if i can find a link to this video um there was a guy that came off like a real douchebag and he said oh i got this film right away um and okay and yeah exactly (laughs) and his whole premise was just kind of what we're talking about he's like you know i realized about halfway through that this was not a film for the head this was a film for the heart and so I just let it sink in and I knew exactly what, you know, Renee was trying to say here. Um, uh, did he ever honest, mention what he was trying to say there? Or did he kind of leave that vague? Well, okay. So this is my bias. As soon as I heard that guy talk, I honestly shut it off because I was like, I immediately don't believe anything that this dude says. And I don't even care if he's right. Like, I hate that guy. So. <laughs> It was probably a clickbait one anyway, where he doesn't actually know what it was. It's just that he knows he should just watch and enjoy the film. And that's what Renee was trying to say. Yeah, that's probably what it was, to be honest. I just, any, anybody that leads with that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, big guy, you're the best. You're the smartest. Well, and you know, that kind of takes away a lot of the, the, the fun of these type of movies. Like, even though I didn't like this, but I mean, we're going to be talking about one here in a second. The fun is kind of, the sense of what you kind of take out of it. Like, I don't think necessarily when we talk about our next film, we're all going to have the same thing. And I wouldn't want that to be that concrete. I th- and I think that's what makes it complicated. I want a level of concreteness. Oh, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you exactly what Mulholland Drive is about. Thank God. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's going to tell me. Uh-huh. Don't worry. I got you. Any, any more final thoughts on last year of Marion Bad? Or at Marion Bad. I think that's a good way to end it, actually. Yeah, I think I'm. Good. I just implore you, listener, just watch the movie. You know, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, just watch it. It's not that long, it's only like 90 minutes. Um, and you'll either end up like me and, and Chris, who enjoy it, or you'll end up like Zach, who is just like, yeah, it looks nice, but what's the fucking point? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to tell anybody not to watch it. I think people should, yeah. because I am in the vast minority here from what I've read. <laughs> If you if you do watch it, hit Zach up on Instagram and tell him that you liked it uh, yes. in one of the comments. Yeah, bombard Spam. me with stuff. I Spam. need more engagement. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only enigma in this next section is our bank account. Curious as to why we keep spending so much money. Um, <laughs> but I'll say I think this is going to be a little bit more of a loose form, a collection corner. Because uh, we're recording these kind of back to back due to my troubling schedule, um, so thank you, Adam and Zach, for being flexible again. Um, but there's something that I wanted to ask about. So I had to take my entire collection down, right, for this mold repair that we just did. 
So there's 5,000 movies now, 5,050 movies spread across our floor. <laughs> I can actually send you all a picture. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, and I'm thinking about how to reorganize them right now, right? So this is my, like, this is the chance I get to dust them off to kind of make sure the inventory is up to date and then to um, figure out how I want to organize them. And one of the things that I'm going through in this is that I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that my, where my head is at is I have three like real strong favorites in terms of like the big players, right? Like I'm um, fun city editions. I'm complete on all those, but there's only 11 of them. So like it may be in 10 years, we'll talk about, um, I'll be complete and it'll be 200 or 300 of those, but it's a still small label, right? So the big ones are vinegar syndrome, uh, criterion and arrow. Yeah. And uh, I know, Zach, I know you're a big collector of Scream Factory. I have less than I thought I would. Um, um, anyways, I, I thought Scream Factory was going to be bigger. Um, but one of the things, based, I got thinking about your comment last time, Adam, about labels that are like on the way up and on the way down and those kind of things. And I'm realizing that like, if I'm being totally honest, the way that I view Arrow in terms of how I buy is very similar to Severin, where I don't buy everything they do. I definitely get their box sets. I definitely get their big limited editions uh, if they look interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I just realized that they're kind of slipping for me, which is something I wouldn't have expected to say. But if I look at what I've actually bought over the last year, it's mostly Vinegar Syndrome and Criterion, and then the smaller boutiques. And I don't know if that's because Arrow just hasn't put out as much good new stuff to get. Like obviously they had the Shaw Brothers set, which was a day one purchase. We found out, we know they're gonna be doing another Shaw Brothers set this year, right? So we know some of these things are coming, um, which is exciting. But yeah, I don't think I view them in, in my head space at least. I don't even know if I view them as like a big three in terms of how I buy anymore. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I thought that was interesting. Now, just as a follow-up to, to the comment uh, from last week. Glad, glad to see you and uh, you um, agree, agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm the same. My, 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 well, to be honest, my, my buying in general has slowed down, saving for a wedding and all that. Um, so my buying in general has slowed down, but it's, it's certainly slowed down from Arrow. And to be fair, I think, and I spoke about this last time, I think the quality of the Arrow player helps with that, you know, because so much stuff goes on there. Yeah. I feel like I don't always need to get the physical copy. Um, unless it's like a film that I really love and I want to get like the nice edition of it. Yeah. Uh, I usually just wait for it to come onto the Arrow player with something I'm kind of, you know, semi-interested in, if that makes sense. Like like the Chabrol movies and even like the Shaw, the Shaw Scope movies. I didn't buy those either because I'd never really seen any of them. I didn't know if I liked them. I wasn't going to drop a, a ton of money on them as a blind buy. Um, so, you know, the quality Arrow player helps with that in a way. You mentioned this before. We should try to reach out and get somebody from the Arrow Player on the podcast. That'd be a really fun interview. I agree with you. Yeah, I'd love to hear what, how their sort of programming works. You know, their curation game is very strong. Okay, that's that's a good. I'll take that note. <laughs> what about you, Zach? Um, since you were kind of talking about labels on the way up and stuff, where you were complete on uh, Fun City. Speaking of keeping current, uh, the only one I'm still current on is Error Four Four Four. How many fours did I say? The ones with four fours. Um, oh, they, um, 
if anybody remembers who's been here for a while, they were the very first interview we ever did um, where, we, where we we talked to them before their first one had released. Uh, just got their new release that got pushed back a little bit, which is the Funky Forest Collection. Um, looks good in hand. Uh, I'm actually really happy with how it turned out. I was kind of curious because they didn't have a ton of pictures of the box set. And brown is kind of something I worry about in general, like as a color. But when it came in, I was actually pleasantly surprised how it looked in hand. I actually think it looks really good. It came with some stickers. Um, I haven't watched either movie yet. I need to get around to it. But uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, that's kind of been the big thing I got. Beyond that, I have some. Uh, I have Possessor coming in from Turbine, from a private seller. So I'm waiting on that to come in um, because I just need to buy that movie again for some reason because the cover's nice. Um, and I think that's been about it. I hadn't got a whole lot else. What about you, Adam? See, as I just said, I haven't really been buying much. So I just kind of wanted to talk about maybe some speculation. And this kind of leads into our next conversation. Um, we're getting to that time of year now, usually like June, July. Criterion normally put out a, a nice big box set. So I've just been kind of having to think over the last few weeks about what the box set, you know, could be um, in terms of, you know, what, what could actually be included, whether it's going to be a series or a director or anything like that. And the one that's making most sense to me right now is a David Lynch, like Essentials box set, because out of his 10 features, Criterion owns the rights to seven. Obviously, we know Inland Empire is showing from, you know, showing in, in theaters right now and will eventually probably get a physical release. And we know that David Lynch is currently working on a restoration of Lost Highway for, for Janice and Criterion as well. And obviously they already have Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, and of course, Mulholland Drive, which we'll get into shortly. So like I'm thinking a Lynch set really makes sense because it seems like, it seems like unfortunately he is kind of done making movies. You know, he's getting on, he's sort of happy just sort of living his life and doing restorations now for his older stuff. It seems like he's probably done making feature films. So like what better time like put out like a definitive box set of all his like most both most beloved films. The only films you'll miss out on is Dune, which is obviously a very divisive film. It's a more of a cult film, so it suits Arrow. Um Wild at Heart, which again is more of a very divisive film. I know a lot of people like it, a lot of people don't. Crit- and Shout has Act. a great restoration. Yeah, and you probably like that one anyway, Zach, because it's I Nicolas Cage. Uh, and then The Straight Story, which is kind of like its own thing. You know, it's 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 a freaking David Lynch Disney movie, you know? <laughs> so that's my, that's my like sort of, I I've obviously have no connection to Criterion. I have no insight, insider insight on this at all. It just wouldn't surprise me if that will be a major box set in the next sort of year or two, once the, like it probably won't be maybe this summer, maybe like later in the year or next year, because obviously they need to have the Lost Highway um, restoration stuff done first to include it. Um, but that's just, that's a bit of speculation for me as to what I think could possibly be a future Criterion box set. It makes a lot of sense because um, Lynch does work with Criterion directly on this kind of stuff. So um, It's the 45th anniversary of Eraserhead, so you could even try to tie it into something like that. Oh, well, that's it. It's fucking nailed on now. <laughs> that's, do you think I'm talking out of my ass, or do you have any ideas yourselves what, what it could be, what the book set this year could be? 
that, that's kind of my hope, in all honesty. And I, I'd really rather them announce that in June because I'm considering getting the Mulholland Drive 4K in July. Um, uh-huh. So I would really hate myself a little bit if I bought that and then they immediately announced, oh, by the way, here's the David Lynch set. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, you know, it makes the most sense. Inland Empire has gotten so much press in the last little bit because it's making its rounds, its restoration. Um, of course, there was some stuff about cans with Lynch that didn't end up being anything. But he's been in the the news a bit, uh, a lot. And I feel like that could, you know, mean there's more to be announced with him, even if it's not a feature film. Yeah. They're, I have this theory that they do um, their box sets based around the Eclipse line that they've been putting out. Um, because these are movies that maybe they've already been out in one format. There's an opportunity to get another format or maybe yeah. some more uh, sales from them. Um, also, I'm just seeing this World on a Wire cover. This is tied into my answer. It looks a lot like Arrow's Sacred Spirit cover. I wonder if Criterion copied them. <laughs> Very tongue-in-cheek um, of you to say. Um <laughs> Didn't the pretty... artist for Arrow's one address this? Well, did no, I think, it was the, I think it was the president of Arrow that basically said, okay. sorry, guys, it's my, my bad. Yeah, and they just put out new art for it the other day, which actually looks really good. Their new art, I, I don't know how quick that turnaround was, but I actually like the new art. Um, yeah. I haven't actually seen it. I haven't seen the new art for it. Better, I better look it up. Sacred Spirit, the film is called, isn't it? Yeah, but I think you they have, so they own the rights to 510... 15, 15 Fassbender movies. And I have, so I think, it, you know, there's the Fassbender sets that are coming out from Arrow. Mm-hmm. And I just have this weird feeling that if you look at their Eclipse sets, they've got all these Fassbender movies. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of work together, so to speak, and like get pretty comprehensive on his filmography if you can do it between the two companies. So that's that's my theory for the year. Yeah, well, I know Criterion have Criterion have the, the region A rights to most of Fassbender's work. I think the, the Fassbender, I think Arrow only has the region B um, uh, rights to Fassbender. So I think Criterion already have, but at least, at least the Criterion channel already has a ton of, pretty much all of Fassbender's work. I, I could have swore that um that Criterion had the rights to all the big all the big Fassbender film. I'm just gonna look this up just to make sure I'm not talking out my ass here. Um, but I'm certain that 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 they already have pretty much. Okay, yeah. So there's a good few. Of them, there's a few of them in Eclipse sets, as you said. But there is also the BRD trilogy, which is Lola, The Marriage of Maria Bond, and Veronica Moss. Uh-huh. They have individual releases for World on a Wire. Yeah, they have individual releases for most of it, for a lot of its films. There's a few that they don't. Um, I don't see Chinese Roulette here. That's a really good film. Um, they have The Bitter Tears. They have Merchant of Four Seasons. The only I'm sure there are some that Arrow might have that 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 Criterion don't, but it looks as though the ones that Criterion have is pretty comprehensive of his like most well respected works. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think if the, the 
if you have these movies in your catalog, and I don't know how Eclipse sells for them, but I have to imagine it slowed down a lot over the years because they're only DVD and they stopped making them. Mm. So it feels like, you know, if you're ever going to do it right around the timing of Arrow's releases of the sets, maybe there's a little bit of an uptick in interest in Fassbender. Yeah. But timing wise, this is when I would do it uh, if, if I wanted to make a box set. But, you know, they, they also really need to do an Ozu set. They own a lot, you know, they, they put out some of his movies, but I mean, there's a million that they could do, but um, uh, so everyone, guess, everyone wants a Kurosawa set. The, re, the redo. That's the thing, you know, I don't know the rights on that, but they, if they charge 500 bucks for that, people would still buy it, right? Yeah. Um, there's almost no limit what people would pay for that. So it'd be a smart move. But anyways, yeah. Watch, watch them bring out a set now of kaiju movies or something. <laughs> All right, and welcome back. Now we are going to be talking about arguably David Lynch's best film, uh, Mulholland Drive, which came out in 2001. It's after a car wreck on a winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman uh, with a, to give her amnesia. I'm not even going to try to say that word. She and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles and a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. So, um, Adam, you're a resident Mulholland Drive expert here. Yeah. So tell us what this is about. Give us the answers <laughs> we're seeking. I don't know if we want to go straight into it so far, but I'll just start with saying, yeah, Mulholland Drive, I fucking love this film. Um, it's one of my all-time favorite films. If I was to be conservative, I'd say I've seen at least... 10 times that number is probably closer to like 15 or 20 and um, because before the advent of streaming i owned about 20 or 30 different dvds and this is one of them so i used to just rewatch. i probably watch this film at least once a month for a solid year um so i love this film i love everything about it um I have a pretty good grasp on like the whole film now so like when i was re-watching it yesterday and I, I don't have that confusion that I did have once before. I think we've all had when we first watched it and we thought, what is even happening? Um, when we get to about, well, it only really kicked, once we get to about an hour, an hour and a bit in, or maybe like 90 minutes in, um, that's when we kind of think, what is going on? Um, luckily, I think I have it down to a T now, but um, I still love everything about this movie. It's, it's an amazing film. And we're so lucky to even have it. This film shouldn't even really exist. I don't know if you guys know much about how Mulholland Drive came to be. I don't know if you've heard the story of how Mulholland Drive exists. It was supposed to be a TV pilot or something, right? I know, like a exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what happened was after Twin Peaks ended, um, David Lynch went to ABC and sort of pitched them the idea of this woman who gets into a car crash she doesn't remember who she is, but she has a fuck ton of money and a blue key. And they have to try and figure out what, what's going on. And ABC were like, yes, we want this. What happens next? And Lynch was like, well, you're going to have to pay me. To f- <laughs> you're going <laughs> to have to the- pay me if you want to find that out. Um, so they're like, okay, go shoot a pilot. Um, he shot the pilot and showed it to an executive and he hated it. So ABC said no. So that kind of pissed Lynch off. This is in 1999 now. So that kind of pissed Lynch off a bit. So he was speaking with a French producer about the, about this cancel pilot. And this French producer worked for Studio Canal. And he said, this sounds great. Do you want to, tur- like, we can't do a TV show, but like, 
do you want to like turn it into a film? And Lynch was like, mm, I suppose so. If I can't do the TV show, I suppose this will have to do. And that was it. Like most of the film, the the good, the first like 90 minutes of this movie were shot in 1999. And then they didn't that finish it until a year later. That explains so much about the look of the film. Because I thought it was interesting to watch it because I'm like, I, I, there's definitely more reasons why it looks so soft, but I was like, it almost looks like Twin Peaks and like yeah. a lot of a lot of scenes. So that's cool. I didn't realize it was shot in 99. So that's interesting. Yeah, that was it. Originally it was shot in 99, the first 90 minutes and then all the additional stuff to kind of wrap it up <laughs> into, a, into a conceivable ending. Uh, some people would say conceivable might not be actually the case but i think it's conceivable into a conceivable ending and just the film and then it's one of the best films ever made so we he, lynch kind of stumbled across one of the best films ever made just because some executive at abc didn't like the pilot so thank you that thanks thanks to that man thank you <laughs> i'm curious adam you said you said you own several copies um of yeah. the film did you have a dvd i can't tell you exactly which one it was because i had it when i was younger that had like 10 clues from David yes. Lynch to unlock it. Okay. Okay. So you know that list. I was going to bring that up, what the 10 yeah. clues were. So I was curious if you had already seen I it. I don't you- currently own that copy. That was part of my DVD purge about, about eight or nine years ago. I only own two copies of it now, both Studio Canal Blu-rays, but the one, the newer 4K one uh, that, they, that they worked with, with Criterion, which was so weird when I turned this on yesterday. And I put a Studio Canal disc in and I saw the Criterion logo pop up. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they actually co-financed. I didn't realize that. I assumed just Studio Canal did it and then Criterion just bought the rights for Region A. But they actually co-produced it together, which is pretty cool. Um, it's nice to see them work together. Um, so I, that kind of threw me for a second. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't own the DVD copy with the 10 clues anymore, but I'm aware of the 10 clues. Yeah, I had the same reaction when I saw the Criterion thing. I did a double take because I have the Studio Canal version. Yeah. I did a double take. So um, They Shoot Pictures has this as the 48th best movie of all time. So I'm going to say too low. I'm going to say too low there. What what is it? 48. Yeah, that's bullshit. This is like a top 20 movie of all time. Easily. Um, The movie that, let's see. So it's just ahead of Dr. Strangelove. Um, and okay. just behind Ugetsu Monogatari and then The Third Man and Modern Times and Grand Illusion. Yeah, I think it's better than all those. It's better than all those movies. I've seen all those. This is better. It's, it's uh, Night of the Hunter is a little bit above it in the latest poll. I can at least see that. That's fair. Um, <laughs> anyways, I, I won't go through all 48. In the Mood for Love is above it. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, this movie obviously rules. I, you know, I've forgotten how I really don't like um, the, the way that this movie starts with the people dancing the jitterbug. And it's like that super cheap style of editing where they're just kind of like all pasted on like a screen together. It's so good. Yeah, I love that. I think it's, it's so I mean, good. it does end at least everything else in a way. It, it what it what to everything else? It does tie into everything else later. Oh sure, of. yeah, sure. Oh no, it's relevant to the plot and everything. I just don't. I don't know. It like it looks cheap. I don't know. I don't like that style of 
I was like, oh yeah, that's right. But then, it, I mean, anyways, it doesn't matter. It, it jumps you right back into the world and, and, and it's easy to get sucked in. Um, our, I guess we'll get into uh, theories and, and Adam, you're going to tell us what this is about in a minute. But one of my favorite things to do as I'm, as I'm watching this movie is to think about which one is reality and which one is the dream or which one is the fantasy. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I want to talk about that a little bit as we go along. But I just, yeah, this movie is really great. Um, I think the way that he gets his actors to, uh, in, the, in the first section, especially the first two thirds, the way he gets them to act um, uh, over the top and, and like the style in which he gets them to act in is yeah. so perfect for the tone and so important for the right the way that the second half plays out or the second piece plays out. Um, I, I love all the choices he made and it was fun. One of the Studio Canal extras is the editor, his, his like main editor for all of his movies. And hearing her talk about David Lynch is worth the price of admission. It's awesome. She's a, she's a brilliant woman. And uh, Mary, Mary, those Mary Sweeney, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's the editor as well. Yeah, she's worked with him pretty much his whole career, if I remember correctly. That's what that's what it seems like. They they started working on Twin Peaks together, and then she was with them, I think, for the rest of the way. Um, but this, the way that she talks about how she works with him is amazing. Like, for example, I'll just give one story, and then we can get back into the movie. But the first cut, so so he has his like notes on the script, and she learned over time to like just deliver what's on the notes, and then they'll edit it together. So the first cut she delivered to him for Fire Walk with me was five and a half hours long. And they just sat in a room and like took notes. And like at the end of that five and a half hours, they both had this like long notes. He gave her notes, she gave him notes, they talked. She took, ex she took additional notes as to where to cut, what to change. And then he was gone for two more weeks uh, doing other things. And then she came back and showed him the cut. So my point is he had this like tremendous amount of trust in her. Like all they had is one discussion and then he just left and let her do her thing, which I thought was awesome. Uh, so she's like very integral into the way these stories play out. Uh, anyways, it was it was a cool interview. You know, it's it, I think it Lynch is interesting in the sense that like um, you know we talk about Kubrick and he's very detail oriented. He's very particular, and it always feels purposeful. Well, I think Lynch also feels really purposeful with things, but he does it in the almost complete opposite way like you're talking about chris where it's like okay they still have a job to do i'm not gonna sit here and helicopter parent them do this they know what i want and they trust them to do it and it's kind of like i was alluding to earlier in our last part of our discussion where um Ju uh, justin Thoreau asked lynch at one point like during it because he gets to, he's only getting like part of the scenes and he talks to the cowboy character and he's like so will i see him one more time or two more times and he just tells him i don't know we'll figure it out together and that's just how Lynch is. Like, it's just like, yep, we'll figure it out. Even if everything feels like super purposeful. I always like yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's, he's an awesome guy. Um, I suppose we're talking about what the movie means. So I suppose this is your spoiler warning because I am going to literally lay out the plot of Mulholland Drive. So if you do want to try and figure out the mystery for yourself, maybe skip over this part. I'll put timestamps in. Um, so one of the first so Zach had mentioned that on the DVD there were 10 clues that David Lynch had left for the viewer to try and figure out what it means and the first clue is that 
there are at least two clues revealed before the opening credits. So we've already talked about one, the dance scene, the jitterbug. Um, that comes up again. You probably think it's just a random, random sort of weird little prepper for the movie. Um, but it, it, is, it is mentioned again later on in the film where um, Naomi Watts, who we now know, know as Diane, uh, Diane Selwyn, says that she came to Hollywood because she was noticed after winning a, a jitterbug contest. Yeah. So there's our first sort of clue. The second clue is what we see immediately before the credits start. And that is the first person perspective of someone falling on a pillow. I think you can probably guess where I'm going with this. Yeah. Everything, yeah, yeah. Ev everything we see right up until right up until the moment where after Camilla, or not Camilla, Rita put, you know, opens the box. And then after that, everything in between is all a dream. Yeah. So what we see for the last 30, 35 minutes is, is the reality. So Naomi Watts' character is Diane Selwyn. She was a bright-eyed Hollywood hopeful but she just simply wasn't good enough. As, as we saw, you know, she met Camilla Rhodes, played by Laura Haring. She met her on the set of this film, directed by Aaron Kesher, the one about the, the story of some singer. Um, they met together. Camilla got the part, but, you know, she, she and Diane remained friends and Diane got little parts here and there, but she was never, she was never as good. Um, and obviously a romantic relationship developed then between Camilla and Diane, but Camilla didn't want to continue that. She was getting together with the director and Diane couldn't take that. You know, she, she was in love with Camilla. She wanted her to be together when it's revealed, when it's never actually explicitly revealed what the news is at the dinner party, whether they're getting married or whether Camilla's pregnant, they don't actually say it. They just kind of start laughing when they get to that point. Yeah, right. After that, Diane snaps. She hires a hitman who gives her a blue key to sort of symbolize this is done. And when obviously Diane then is overcome with guilt afterwards, which drives her mad, she kills herself. End of the movie. So that's reality. Obviously, everything we see up until that point is Diane's dream of how, how she envisions what her life would have been like. This is a life where she is a bright-eyed, hopeful. She's very talented. Everyone she sort of auditions for or meets her, loves her and thinks she's amazing. She, and most importantly, Camilla in this world is completely dependent on her. She doesn't know who she is. She follows her around. She's in love with her. She is completely and utterly dependent on Betty in this world, which is how she wants it to be. She's with Camilla slash Rita she is extremely talented she is probably destined for great things in Hollywood and then there is little scenes and throughout that gives hints towards the reality so you know we see the hitman for example in the dream world is a bumbling hitman we have that little scene and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Lynch wrote this exactly how it's supposed to be these are probably subplots for what the tv show is going to be the hitman, for example, the cowboy, the, the, the man behind the Winkies, which is one of the best scenes in cinema history, the man behind the Winkies. 
these were all probably subplots, but they work so well in the overall narrative because they all at some point crop back up again in, in the real world. So the hitman is obviously shown as being the person that Diane hires. And she even says the line, this is the girl, which is what's said to the director in the, in the film, in the dream world, this is the girl. We see the cowboy at the dinner party. He walks by. Mm-hmm. We see him in the background. So pretty much all these, he, he does a very good job of, of mopping up all the subplots um, you know, in the sort of real world, which was shot after. The, which, this, this was the part that was shot afterwards, by the way, to kind of wrap up the film. Right. This, this was what was shot afterwards. So he, he, he does all this to wrap it up. But just to sort of bring it down to brass tacks, Everything we see in the world of Betty and Rita, that's not real. That is a dream. That is Diane's sort of dream on how she wished her life had played out in Hollywood. And there's also an indictment there about how Hollywood treats its people. Obviously, Adam is shown as being forced into hiring an actress he doesn't want or know. And if he doesn't comply, his whole production is shut down. He loses all his money. Um, and also shows how you know, the two sides of the same coin where Camilla becomes successful and wealthy. Diane, you know, is, is, is shown as the opposite of that. So I think also underneath, and we had talked about this act that, you know, there is a maybe a connection one could make to Sunset Boulevard, which is one of Lynch's favorite films. He references it quite a lot in a lot of his work, where again, whereas that takes a stab at the practices of Hollywood, this film also does that as well. Yeah, and I know... Um her aunt lives on i can't think of the name of the road right now but it's the one that it intersects sunset boulevard right near the hollywood sign right next to the hollywood sign exactly Um, exactly it's shown as rita makes her way from the car crash she is shown to walk on sunset boulevard and the winkies is sunset boulevard yeah yeah that's right it is um and i did want to bring up something you were mentioning adam where you um talked about the director adam had made the movie camilla camilla was chosen for yes what's interesting and i caught it this time was they mentioned that that's not who directed that film it was bob brooker the guy who was shit you're right yes it's it's they you can barely hear it but i caught it this time where um it said directed by bob brooker and i'm like so adam did right and that makes it really interesting because it's i don't know if it's just how uh i'm gonna say her name uh naomi watts character so i don't go back and forth on her name um it's almost like it's almost like uh, i guess the theory of why she's not successful you know it's because she wasn't noticed uh she didn't have the luck she wasn't on the casting couch so to speak that you know she decided i I guess you can interpret she decides to go for later on to become have any sort of success um but yeah I, i always thought i think it's really interesting that they decided to kind of make her wrong and who how she kind of sees what happened like she thinks oh well adam got her the part because she's with him and in reality he didn't get her that part because he didn't make that movie i just thought i just thought it was something interesting to, that's interesting to no you're that. you're correct and when you said it, it makes sense in my head that's why it ties in in the dream world because he was the one casting the film where naomi watts character does a really great job in the scene so that makes that makes absolute sense and this makes sense to one of the clues, which is one of the eight, the eighth clue is the talent alone help Camilla. And the answer now is probably yes. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense to me now, because I was trying to, I was going back and forth on that clue as to what the answer was. 
And what you've said there now, yeah, I think talent alone probably did. And then obviously later on, the reason I got confused obviously shows Camilla did make a film with Adam then later on, mm-hmm. um, which is where uh, Naomi Watts starts to sort of notice that maybe she's not Camilla's only flame or maybe she's second best to Adam's going to sort of take over as the love interest. You know, yeah, and it, you know, I think it's interesting. I think the scene where she does really well is I, I think it's it's all it's very different in hindsight now that we've had the whole Harvey Weinstein um, event yeah. happen because that is almost I guess in a sense how she views how these people become movie stars. You know, it's an older gentleman who's telling her, you know, she hates herself for doing it, but she feels like this is the only way. This is the only way to do this. Mm. And the only way to be successful where everyone's happy for you and you get what you want to do. And it's, you know, the way you justify it to yourself in the sense of it's beneficial for both people. And of course, you know, that's not the real case, but it's how you justify it to yourself. And I just think that seems like really interesting to watch because it's very melodramatic, but in probably the best way. So real quick, before we move too much on from Naomi Watts, I just want, this is one thing I wanted to focus on when we were talking here. she's a hell of an actress like i love naomi watts she's great good like i always knew that she was good um but when she switches characters in this movie it's so natural and she does it on a dime like the scene that you're that we're talking about now where she goes into casting in the dream portion where she nails it when, when her character, who's this cheery, bright-eyed, you know, Midwest kind of American girl with, or actually she's from Toronto, right? Or whatever. Anyway. Toronto. Yeah. But she's this like bright-eyed girl who's like, oh, I'm going to go make it in Hollywood. And then when she switches into acting mode, it's like, it's powerful. Like she just goes into the character. You're like, whoa. Like I, and, and then, you know, there's obviously the dream or the, the reality sequence in the, the last third of the movie where she plays it even differently. But she switches it's just it's a wonderful piece of acting like i i don't know that i can remember a uh, a piece of acting that was so uh good without being obnoxious like because she she nails it she doesn't overact at all like she no. gets like, just the right perfect tone uh for for all of the characters that she plays um and uh yeah i i just was stunned watching this again and what's funny is that Lynch cast both her and Laura Haring just based on their photographs. Hmm. Oh, that's ironic. Oh, I, okay. That's kind of cool because of the scene in the uh, at the beginning. Yeah. That's, that's, this is that's the funny. I like that. Well, Lynch, okay. Lynch, probably, Lynch probably held up her headshot and went, this is the girl. This is the girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So, sorry. I don't, mean to, uh, uh, I don't mean to debate on this, but Laura Haring is actually one of the interviews on that Studio Canal thing. Mm-hmm. And it's close to that. It, it, I don't know about Naomi Watts' side. It's close to that, but it's, it's, it's kind of a cool story, actually. So somehow or another, he found her. Maybe that was what you're referring to. Maybe he saw a headshot and he called yeah. her in for an interview. And she said she walked into the room and she's nervous, you know, whatever. And um, he, all he did was lean back and look at her with like, he's like, she's like, he was intently studying me. And he just goes, good, good. <laughs> good um and she's standing there like okay <laughs> and then uh and then he calls her in uh for a, a screen test with uh to the studio like a few weeks later so that was like the process of casting laura herring um 
Um, anyways, it, I thought it was a crazy, that sounds like a very David Lynch type of story. Like, like who knows what was going on in his mind as he was saying that, but it was probably something pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. And kind of the opposite now, but I actually don't think Laura Haring is even particularly good in this movie. She's fine. Um, she does what she needs to do. Especially, yeah, like especially, I think she's probably better as Camilla than she is as Rita. Um, Rita doesn't have a lot of personality. I think it works, though. I, yeah, I think it yeah. does work, but uh, yeah, I don't think she's all that good. Uh, Justin Thoreau is interesting. I like, I like Justin Thoreau. Um, he's very good in Inland Empire as well. But um, one thing I like about his character is the way that in the dream world, um, Diane kind of neuters him or makes him a cuckold. Mm-hmm. So, like in reality, you know, she she views him as stealing her girlfriend. He can't even the, satisfy his wife. So how can he yeah, satisfy her? yeah? In the dream world, Billy Ray Cyrus is fucking his wife, and <laughs> um, and he he um, you know, he can't keep his movie together. He's being forced to do things. He can't like he tries to be intimidating. Um, you know, to keep the movie as it is, and like it just doesn't work. They're like, "Well, fuck you. We're gonna take all your money. We're gonna shut down production." So he's forced. The- he's forced into doing it because obviously we then see him on the set saying, "This is the girl." When Camilla Rhodes, fake Camilla mm. Rhodes, stream Camilla Rhodes comes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the part of the film for me that, like, if I was gonna like capture how this movie feels, it is that scene where they're having that meeting. And the uh, producer guy just spits all the espresso out on the napkin. <laughs> uh, that guy, he, he's that's uh, Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, is it? The, is it really? That's, that's, that's him, awesome. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, cool. it's a cool scene. And I do have one complaint about the movie: Robert Forrester's <laughs> only in one scene. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was at the beginning. I was like, I don't remember him anymore in this movie. And I was like, Oh, that's why I don't remember him in this movie. Yeah, he's <laughs> the only time he shows up. Oh, but the other detective who just goes, someone's missing, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a weird, it's a weird little scene. They're just like, the, they're like the fucking worst cops ever. I uh, always wonder if like, if this was a show, if the idea was to have Robert Forrester as a Cooper character, like Probably. later down the road, but I, I don't know. It feels weird to like, just have good, him. Like he's a big character actor, even at that time. So yeah, it's exactly. Like... <laughs> like it feels weird to just have him in that way. Like it's, it's a weird, just, just, you know, just uh, having just as that one character in that one scene <laughs> could have had anyone do it. Like, um, I mean, I'm not going to complain. It was Robert Forrester. It just was weird. <laughs> no, but yeah. to your point from earlier, Adam, like this is the beautiful thing about this movie, right? Is those two characters they get like 30 seconds of screen time, but there's so much intrigue to them. Like, I could use them. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I, it's it's the opposite of what we we're saying. This is why I mentioned it during last year, Marion, about the conversation. Because, you know, characters, like even the main characters, you can't really get a grasp on them or get overly sentimental about them. But like, like any character in this film, you can just kind of latch on to them. Like the dude who goes behind the Winkies. He's the one, that's the one scene I've never been able to figure out why it's there. Because he doesn't, as far as I can tell and remember, he doesn't appear in reality. The guy who has the dream about the Winkies. And I, I, I took that as like, because he's the one who sees the name tag. Does he, is that when you see Diana's no, name? No, and then later no. See, is that not it? No, that's when later on in the film, both Betty and Betty and Rita are in the, are in the okay. same Winkies. Yeah. And they see, they see the name tag of Diane. And that's when Rita there. goes, Diane, you know, I recognize that name. He's standing by the door in the background. Oh, is he? 
But that's not reality, though. That's still the dream. No, 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 no. When they're when 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 uh, Naomi watches Diane, and oh, she and she's meeting okay. that guy with the hitman. With the hitman. Yeah. yeah, with Mark Pellegrino. Okay. 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 He is in the background. Okay. He's standing by the door or something. Because I was like curious what he. The only reason I noticed it is because like that scene was so important. It felt like in the dream, right? So I was curious then, like. What, what, what they were going to do with him when I saw him standing by the door. I was like, oh, there's the, the, the dream guy. But anyways, he just, he just had like a brief appearance. And That's weird coincidence perfect. I have to bring up, uh, that character who goes behind the Winkies and the hitman, Mark Pellegrino, are both in Lost. I just wanted to note that. We can both of them are. Oh, shit. Okay. Mark Pellegrino, is that, is that? That's Jacob. Jacob. Ah. And, and then the other guy is Phil, who was in like the fifth season, who everyone hated, who worked for the Darwin Initiative. Okay. I don't remember They're him. Yeah, I'm. I he's in. He's in Twin Peaks: The Return. That's pretty much all I can get from that. Yeah, I think Lynch likes him quite a bit. Yeah, well, I, he just has an interesting face, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, he does. And, have and Pellegrino's a, a great character actor, so I can understand putting him in anything. Anyway, of course, Big Lebowski. He's, he plays the same sort of character in Big Lebowski. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he's the one who like dunks um, Jeff Bridges' head into the toilet at the beginning. I haven't oh, seen it. Right. So. Oh, you've never seen Big Lebowski. Wow. Chris, nope. it's your week. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, I wish that tied into um, the movie that I'm going to pick from the film club a little bit. Just while we're on the Winky scene, that scene is so fucking good. And Lynch tell we, we know exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We know that there is a man behind Winkies that the dude is terrified of. We know exactly yeah. what's going to happen. Right. But that, f- that scene is so scary. Even after multiple viewings of that film, I was still getting jumped. I obviously didn't this time because I know exactly how it happens, exactly when it happens, the, mo- the sliding movement from behind, from behind the wall. But like the first four or five times, I was still getting jumped at that scene. It's amazing. It's like a. It's like if you want to show in a college, a film school, how to convey dread. That is like this. That is like a cornerstone scene for like conveying dread, because we know exactly what's going to happen. We're already told exactly what's going to happen, but it's still so effective. It's amazing. I don't you know, know what I, it is about it. I was just sitting here thinking about um, what it could mean, like what the. Uh you know, the homeless man behind, the man behind Winkies means. And you can correct me because you've seen it more than I have. So we know, if I'm right, if she sees the blue key, like the blue house key, we know the yeah. hitman was successful in killing yes, Camille. exactly. So in that sense, that's almost like a weird manifestation of, I don't know what you could say, like her guilt or that dread of waiting for that key. Because that's the man who also mm-hmm. has the, tri- the triangle key, right? In the box. Uh, the triangle key. Um, where does that? They have the box. Yeah, the box is in the bag. They don't find the triangle key until they go to Club Silencio, where they're basically told that everything they're seeing is not real. Nothing. So he real. just has the, the box. Isn't real. Well, no, they actually. This this is the this is one of the sort of weird things. Yeah, I'm the trying key, to remember. Rita always had the key. It just didn't manifest until after they went to Club Silencio. Okay. Until the character's basically told, you know, no, the whole thing, the band isn't real, nothing is real, the singing mm-hmm. isn't, you know, they're basically told that nothing is real, everything they've experienced now is a is a false reality. 
And mm-hmm. once they learn that, then the key kind of appears in the bag. So then they're okay. like, oh shit, well, we better go home and open the box. And that's when the sort of, that unlocks everything. And that's when Betty slash Diane wakes up from the, from the dream. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I remember that. And then there's that part where uh, in her sleep, Rita keeps saying silencio, which I always thought was interesting. Like that's what leads them. To, that's what leads yeah, to go to Silencio. Silencio. Yeah, that's, that's what right. Leads them there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what... it's funny. I just watched this yesterday, but so much happens. I start getting like Vince mixed up. It is no. It's it's just <laughs> one of those films. It's very packed in. You know, it's two and a half hours long. Um, I know. Even I was watching yesterday, and I was sort of waiting for parts to come up, and I'm like, I could have swore this would have happened by now. But um, yeah, it's a lot happens in, in this movie. And it's completely understandable why, you know, especially people who've seen it maybe only a couple of times, it is kind of hard to grasp because you probably get drawn in by the, by the cowboy, for example, or yeah. by the homeless guy behind Winkies. And they're very enigmatic characters. Even though they don't do a lot, they don't offer the plot really a whole lot. They're very enigmatic. So in a way, they're, they're almost like red herrings. Or like MacGuffins. Maybe MacGuffins probably the better term. Uh, or red herring. I can't remember what it is, which it is, whether it's red herring or MacGuffin. Um, I think it might be red herring actually, where something seems important, but really it's not that important. Yeah, that's a red herring. Yeah. So they're kind of like red herrings in this film, where you're like the cowboy says, if you did good, you'll see me once. If you did bad, you'll see me twice, or something like that. Um, and you're like, oh shit, I better keep an eye for this cowboy. And we do see him twice. Because he, he, he sort of wakes up Betty as she's in a half-sleep state as she's fully awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously we see him in the background of the party then in the kind of flashback almost of what's happened. Um, so I can understand why people would get sort of caught up in that kind of stuff, trying to, you know, maybe be confused about the outcome. But, you know, if you just kind of think of those more so as sort of just, it's just part of dream logic it does, you know, you can, you can kind of ignore them in a way. Well, and, you know, I think there's definitely like some comment, like, especially when you talk about like the cowboy, of course he goes to the corral, which is right next to Hollywood, um, the Hollywood sign. Um, I had to look this up cause I, I wasn't sure I had to double check it, but the clothes he wears is the same thing Tom Mix wore in those old silent cowboy films. Those are the exact clothes. Those are the real things he wore. So it's interesting to almost see like, maybe one of the people who was the first person in stardom like you know he was a big name in the silent era is the person kind of controlling this hollywood-esque idea near the hollywood sign and i I, you know i think i think that's really interesting i don't know if that's really what they're going for the guy who just wore because i think he may have picked out his own clothes because he owned it the guy who played him but still i think that's kind of interesting to see him wear these clothes from an old silent era cowboy who was, yeah. you know, kind of John Wayne before John Wayne. Yeah, it's a good shout out because there's no other real explanation why he would why he would be a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's almost like a like a the the way you describe it, it makes me think of like a nod to um, uh, like tradition in Hollywood, or sort of like you know things don't change in Hollywood. Like this is how it was built, and this is how it is. Maybe almost like uh, tying it into history in some way. Yeah, and it's something you know, Betty or. You know, Diane could, you know, how she kind of justifies why she doesn't get anything, you know, yeah. well, they, I can't break into this tradition. I can't, you know, I won't sleep with anyone, so I can't get the part or, you know, I don't know enough people, 
you know, it's it's just justification after justification. And, you know, the sad part is there's some reality to what she's saying, but not to the extent, but she's also doesn't look at herself and blame herself for why she's not where she wants to be. That kind right. of thing. Right. Well, I'm glad we cracked it. Are we going to, over time, are we going to tackle more of Lynch's films here and just kind of become the definitive uh, place to, to um, define Lynch's filmography? Oh, I only have this one. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what, I don't know what the fucking Inland Empire means. I was just saying, you want to do Inland Empire and let me know? Like, I've only seen it once, but. I've, I probably, to be fair, weirdly enough for me, because it's a three hour movie, I've probably seen Inland Empire like six or seven times. Really? Again, I've only seen it once. Again, because it was part of my rotation of DVDs that I owned uh, when I was a teenager. Um, so I've actually, but I, I haven't seen it in probably about 10 years, but I've seen it a lot. And I remember at one point I had an interpretation about it because during the film, we periodically show uh, a woman, a prostitute watching television. And my interpretation for why the characters kept changing was that this was basically stuff that she was watching on television and she was flicking through different channels. So like Laura Dern's character is just an actress. That's why she's playing different characters because it's just different things that the woman in the hotel is watching. Okay. Okay. I've heard that that one of the guys that did the intro to this movie just briefly touched on Inland Empire, and he said, "I haven't seen it yet," but he said, "Imagine if it's just the the last portion of um, Mulholland Drive where the artifice is kind of broken down, and it's just that for three hours." <laughs> so yeah, it just it does it like just every thirty minutes. It's just like, well, new film now, different movie, but everyone's the same. And it's kind of connected to the last one. Super interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'll yeah. Just... It's it's a weird. It's a it's an odd film. We'll probably once the Criterion copy comes out, I'm sure we'll probably watch it together and we'll try and pick it apart. Uh, Lost Empire is, is a, or not Lost Empire. Lost Highway, um, is a, is another really good Lynch movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's a Lynch movie I don't particularly like. I can't think of one. He's probably Wild of Heart, to be honest with you. Um, oh, I, I like Wild at Heart, but I'm a, I haven't I'm a, seen it in a long time. So, yeah, it's um, I know the the, the author I'm very familiar with because I've read several of his things. So that, I don't know if that helps or not. Um, but Lynch does pick that up very well. What kind of tone that guy is? Because <laughs> right. uh, he did like uh, Parade of Durango as well. Like he uh, wrote okay, the book based yeah. on that, and she's a character in Wild at Heart, not played by the same actress who plays her in the movie Perdita Durango, but yeah. Um, yeah characters in there and they're all similar kind of bonnie and claude type stories that's what they all are um but what yeah what i do now is we all just gotta watch twin peaks and talk about that <laughs> okay uh, we can become a twin peaks podcast uh, that's fine i need to watch the return anyway that suits me that suits me so that was mulholland drive i hope you're all enlightened about what it means if you think i'm talking out of my ass come and like comment on one of our socials or something or uh, come talk to us in uh, the Criterion uh, uh, Ch- Criterion Conversation subreddit and call me out for my bullshit. Uh, so you want to box, was... box Adam? Yeah, do, for sure. Oh yeah, for a boxing match. Come fight me, bro. Uh, <laughs> I'll meet you at the bins. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is just finish up like we always do with any other business, just where we could talk about something we've seen recently that we want to give a shout out to. Um, I'm going to go first and I'm going to severely to degrade the IQ levels of this um, 
discussion and talk about Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Um, yeah. I saw it on Thursday when it came out. Um, and I thought it's really good. I don't know why it's getting shit on. Like, people are like, shitting on this movie. I actually think it's really good. It's funny because, like, for years and years, people have been saying, Marvel's too formulaic. Everything's the same. It's all the same movie. It's all the same plot, just with different characters. And, like, the last two Marvel movies that have actually done something different, they've just been shat on. Eternals and Doctor Strange. People are just, like, shitting on it for doing something different. Now, Doctor Strange is, is better than Eternals. It is it's definitely better. I just find it interesting that as soon as Marvel decide to go off script, people start shitting on their movies. Um, it's just, it just you can't win. Um, but Doctor Strange, Ultimate to Madness, it is a Sam Raimi movie, true and true. Sweet. It is as if Sam Raimi sat down and said, how many Evil Dead references can I get into <laughs> a children's movie? And just like went with it. And I'll, I say children's movie, it, there's some some brutal kills in this film. Yeah, I'm not gonna get spoilers or anything, but like some of the kills are just like shit, you know, <laughs> they're like proper rough. Um like it, it's a film that starts as it means to go on, like from the start, like it's just it doesn't take time tiptoeing around getting the plot going, it just goes, it's just like straight from the opening credits, let's just go. Now it is messy. Um, it is the film that probably would have benefited from like an extra 20 minutes because it does essentially just jump from like set piece to set piece to set piece to set piece and there's just not a lot in between to kind of gel it all together um, which is weird for me with a Marvel film because sometimes you could kind of say they're maybe a bit overstuffed um, and it's not like this film clocks in at like just about two hours just over two hours so it's not even that long in comparison to like other Marvel films. So I can't imagine it was like something on Marvel's end where they decided, no, we don't want this film to be two and a half hours long. Because, you know, most of their films are that. Um, right. at, least, at least recently. So I can't really understand where, where that came from. I know that Raimi didn't write the original script that was originally done by Scott Derrickson, who made the first Doctor Strange movie. A horror fan known from this guy who did Sinister. Um, he walked away, creative differences... And then, you know, the project was kind of up in the air for a while. People were concerned. But then Raimi came in and it's just like, he was like the perfect fit. You know, he had the pedigree in both horror and superhero movies. He was like tailor-made for this kind of film, for what they wanted to achieve. Um, yeah, I thought it was good. You know, it's not, it's not amazing. It's not like, it's not top tier Marvel, but it's like, it's like, it's way better than people are saying it is. I, I don't understand people's problem with it. Um, it's really good. Um is Elizabeth it possible? Because I assume it still has a very rainy tone. And I don't know if you're not oh, familiar with that. It may come off hokey or campy. And it I mean, is, it is. It is That's campy. What... That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Elizabeth yeah. Olsen's like super camp. She's like some of some of like the way she like does facial features and looks like really reminded me of like Vincent Price, weirdly enough. Um, some nice. of it is like pretty, pretty, uh, pretty kooky. Um, but I think it works. I think it's really good. It's, I think it matches. It fits the tone, you know. I don't know what if people were going in looking for a straight superhero movie or going in looking for a straight horror movie, both those people will be disappointed. If you're looking for a Marvel movie that embraces some of its more horror horror elements. And I, I just think if you like Sam Raimi, I think you'll like this film. If anything, you might feel disappointed that it wasn't more Raimier, if that makes sense. Okay. That he was still maybe constrained by the fact that he had to make a Marvel movie. Um, but like it's all there. 
like like, for free. like Kevin Feige was on set like no no <laughs> don't do but that like, <laughs> but, like, but, but at the same time like they even have the Evil Dead you know first person camera zooming oh, around awesome. they even have that you know it's just it's crazy wow. I'm actually Henry. looking forward to it like I haven't looked forward to a Marvel movie in a long time and I was like yeah I need to go see this I'm just waiting I for like, the crowds yeah. to die down a little bit uh, Is- don't even talk to me about the credit. I had the worst experience in the theater when I went to see this. I purposely went early on a Thursday and said, there's nobody going to be here. It's going to be empty. About 45 teenagers. They must have been on a school trip or something. About 45 teenagers piled in and would not shut the fuck up for the whole movie. <laughs> it, it was honestly one of the worst theater experiences I've ever had. Because normally when I go early on a weekday, I'm like the only guy there because all the teenagers are in school and stuff. People don't go to the theater at noon on a Thursday, but like, I don't know. They must've been on a school trip because I don't, I don't understand why they wouldn't have been in school. Uh, these are like 15, 16 year olds. They weren't even like college age. Um, it was weird, but um, thankfully I was still able to take positivities from the movie. Uh, it didn't let me affect that experience. Well, cool. I'm definitely uh, planning to see it soon. Uh, I guess it's been like, 12 years since Randy's made a movie. It's been a long yeah, time. I was, I was Oz curious. the Great and Powerful oh, geez, was the last okay. movie he did. Well, I've heard that he wants to make a like a low-budget horror movie after this, so I hope this gives him some freedom to kind of dive back into that. Well, he'll certainly I, have the money to do it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, with Randy, I don't think it's ever been a question about Hiram. I mean, I think if he said, I want to make this, somebody would be like, okay, here's some money. Oh, totally. Have totally. fun. <laughs> yeah. Totally. But uh, Chris, what about you? What are you? What do you got going on? Okay, so I'm gonna, you know, I think I've been tracking uh, this year a little bit with some of these classic Hollywood um, type of movies. I'm going through this big set, and um, one of the ones I want to talk about. So I, the, the there's there's a section of the book. I'm thirty movie thirty two and thirty three out of a hundred are both James Dean movies. So they got two out of the three movies that he was in, uh, or at least at least starred in. Uh, and uh, uh, East of Eden was was good. I mean, it's interesting. I think there's a there's an interesting kind of discussion there. It's a if y'all haven't seen it, it's a retelling of the Cain and Abel story from the Bible, kind of set in in what was at the time more modern day kind of rural America. Um, but then uh, last night, or actually two nights ago, I saw Rebel Without a Cause. And have y'all seen this? Yes, I've seen it. Adam saying no. I haven't. No. Um, wow, it is so much better than I thought it would be. Like I always knew it was a classic, but it's you know it's a Nicholas Ray movie, and just from the beginning, it's just it just grabs you. Like it's really good. Um, uh, it it puts the that movie the what's the one the '80s movie where they're all in school detention? Is it The Breakfast Club? Yes. Yeah. It puts the Breakfast Club in context because they pull a lot from Rebel Without a Cause, like some some direct quotes, some just more like scenes that they kind of reference. Um, so I, I don't want to say that it's like a spoof of Rebel Without a Cause, but it's certainly an influence on it. Uh, but one of the things I didn't really know about James Dean was he was a phenomenal actor. Like like in these scenes that he's in, he does a lot of like business that was all improv. Like he'll uh, like this one thing he improved was he was waiting in the in the police station and he started mimicking a siren that was going by in the background and he just started wailing and he comes off as this like obnoxious kid in, in the beginning. You know, he just 
he's just very like uh, uh, he's you you come to find that he's kind of depressed and he doesn't like his home life, but the way he's rebelling is through being obnoxious. Um, uh, but just the way he kind of toys with the cops, there was there was what was in the script, and then there was what he added in just his performance. And he was a he was a big actor, like you know the emotions were big and all that. But uh, but he was very talented. So I, I, I'm starting to understand, I think, his appeal a little bit more. I, I honestly hadn't seen a lot of these movies. Um, but the movie itself is, I, I think, you know, it's no surprise uh, that Nicholas Ray is a good director. But I honestly haven't seen that much from him other than uh, Our Namesake. And now this, and I think one other big one that he did. I haven't seen Johnny Guitar yet. You need, I was, was going to chime in. You need to see Johnny Guitar. It's so good. No, I definitely, I mean, that's like the one to see, right? I, I want to, but um, yeah, this movie is so good. Like the way that he plays with uh, uh, teenagers and the way that he gives them uh, nuance is, is you know, the, and, and, and creates sort of like um, this feeling of camaraderie of this teenage group that the outsider, the adults see as rebels, but really they're kind of playing by their own rules and they're, they've just kind of built this world because they don't like the parents. The parents are a mess. They, have, they all come from broken homes. They all have their stories. So they're uniting around being teenagers and, and like the way that he does that story is, is very, very well told. And I, it was just different from what I was expecting, but I want to get people to see it if, if you can, because it's very good. Um, did, did you like it, Zach? Am I, am I crazy? No, I really liked it. I, I enjoy it too. I haven't seen, I've seen two of his films. I haven't seen the one. Uh, East of Eden? Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Well, you've probably seen Giant, right? Yes. That's that's yeah. another big, he's very big in that performance. It's like that oil tycoon kind of. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. One could yeah. say he was a giant. Oh. <laughs> um, and before we get to your uh, section, Zach, I want to, okay, so here, here's, are, are you all okay if I lay out what we're going to watch next? Please. I'm, yeah, my please do. breath, I'm waiting. Okay, great. So um, we saw a movie in the film club, uh, for those who, who are not chatting along with us in our Criterion conversation, which, by the way, you should do. It's a lot of fun. Um, we saw a movie called Throwdown, which was a Johnny Till movie. <clears throat> and it was as if Johnny Till made a movie for me. It was like, it was like, that is exactly the kind of movie that I like. I loved every scene of that film. I can't wait to discuss it. But there's there's one element. Up. So my first instinct was to pull in another Johnny Toe film. There's a movie he did that I really love called PTU, which I think would be a fun one to discuss. Um, there's another movie he's, he's quite famous for called Election, which would be fun to discuss. Um, but where I actually want to take this in a slightly different direction. So everybody has the arrow player, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's a Takashi Miike film oh, um, called, yes. called Rainy Dog. Heard of that one. And the reason I'm going to link these two together is Rainy Dog is the story of three people, a guy, a girl, and a, and a kid, that come together and form this kind of crazy family that doesn't really make sense but it only makes sense in Miki's world. And I'll just leave it at that uh, because I don't want to go too much into Throwdown until we get there. But there's, I, I, um, my favorite book in the Dark Tower series, we were mentioning Stephen King last podcast, is Drawing of the Three, which is the second book, 
where you you take the character uh the man in what is it roland is that right roland 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 yeah roland the shane there you go and you and you see him build a, a family you see him start to build this team and you see him go and pull people from their lives uh and, and they have their own kind of broken lives that he's pulling them from and he uh yeah anyways they, they form this family unit of three and they're going to go to the, to the dark tower together. Right. And it's the way that that story is done. I, I just love it. Like it was a complete page turner for me. I think it's my favorite one in the series. Uh, although book three is also quite incredible. Um, and I, see, I, I was thinking you were going to tell me rainy days has a talking train that makes you do riddles or it kills you. Yes. I'm a little disappointed. That's probably in a different Mickey movie. <laughs> I'm sure that's there somewhere. He has like 180 movies or something, but not this one. No, I, Rainy Dog to me is the story that shows what he's capable of as a, as a storyteller. He doesn't go crazy with the, the manga stuff that he likes to do. It's not uber violent. It can be a hard film to watch at times, but there's a sweet spirit to it. <clears throat> and I think that Throwdown also has a sweet spirit to it. Um, and so I'll leave it at that. But um, Rainy Dog, don't go see Rainy Days. Um, <laughs> um, it's on the Arrow player. And um, I can't wait to watch it with you. I'll discuss it in, in two weeks. It's only, it's only 94 minutes long. So I oh, already yeah. approve. Oh, yeah. I can't wait till my next pick. And I'm going to pick like Napoleon from 1927. <laughs> It'd be an excuse to crack out my BFI copy with this. Prove it. What about you? What's on your mind, Zach? Um, so I actually been watching a lot this week where I mentioned I switched jobs. I had like a couple days to just kind of sit around and watch movies. So I watched like basically a bunch of horror stuff. I know, real shocking. Um, but one I watched, I'd heard about because I'm in a uh, horror Discord. It's a found footage movie called Murder, Death, Koreatown. Um, a very fascinating um, found footage movie. So it's about this guy who notices uh, that across the street, there was his neighbor was murdered. Um, so, you know, your rear window sort of thing. But instead of just sitting there watching, he starts going out into the community and attempting to interview and find out about some like weird inconsistencies with it. Like why the person, why her the boyfriend who got stabbed was uh, walked down the street and why she was arrested in his back alley. Um, really strange movie. But what makes the movie, I think, unique is its possible unethical nature of it. So the murder that happens that he's videotaping and making this weird conspiracy theory about was a real murder that happened. Like, this was his real neighbor who was murdered. He was getting videotape of the blood on the sidewalk. Um, and he, of course, was interviewing real people of the community and trying to get them to talk about it. And essentially, he would do things like, at one point, he finds a homeless man in that alley. And the homeless man is obviously not quite mentally there. So he gets him to basically say certain things and they will like change the movie in that sense to kind of work that in. Um, a very fascinating experiment. Like, cause it's obvious there's nothing written because they're kind of at the mercy of, you know, random graffiti he finds on the side. 
And it's really not about solving the murder. It's really about how these people, how people in this like conspiracy mindset end up being very damaging to themselves and their loved ones. And, you know, that kind of descent into madness. So the, uh, um, the subject of the fear isn't from this murder. It's from him and how far he decides to go to like make this conspiracy theory that something's not right. It's not just as simple as this woman killed her husband or boyfriend. I can't remember which one. It it, it couldn't just be that simple. Um, it had to be something more to it. And it kind of goes into that. But uh, really strange movie. Um, but I, I liked it. Uh, I think I don't know how much I can recommend it. I like found footage, but yeah, that's uh, that's what I watched. Sounds wild. Yeah, and it was hard to find too. Um, I'm not going to mention how I was able to get it, but the movie has been scrubbed from online. Yeah, like it used uh, to be available on Prime for a while, and it won awards. Uh, there is no director named for the film uh, because I don't think the guy wants to note who he actually is. Interesting. That's um, insane. <laughs> yeah, like it, if you look on Letterboxd, it's like it's a snuff film or something. Exactly. It's what it kind of feels like. It's like it's blurring that line. <laughs> Jeez, that's crazy. That, that is that is nuts. I think that'd be a bit too. Uh, if I knew, uh, maybe if I didn't know the backstory, I might be interested. But I think it's a bit too macabre for me. And I, yeah, and I I debate whether I should mention it, but honestly, it's kind of like Blair Witch. Part of it's like the most interesting aspect about it, like yeah. is the background around it, how they did it. Um, Blair Witch, I think, doesn't have those ethical problems, uh, <laughs> at least not as much. I mean, there's might be a little thing about, you know, sending people out into the woods with no communication with anybody and starving. I just, but, I just you know, them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's a little bit better. Yeah. Nice, nice work. What was the